I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You place your left hand on the Bay of Bible and raise your right hand and repeat after me. I do solemnly swear... We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty. Protests continued this weekend in Ferguson and around the country. We're resisting. You're under your It makes no sense. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. Judge, you are the last line of reason in this case. Every one of us took an oath of office, and we're sworn to uphold the Constitution. From Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta, this is Sworn. I'm your host, Philip Holloway. that has been followed and every person who's come forward and every little bit of evidence leads one place. And that's actually Connell. Hi, I'm your host, Philip Holloway. On this episode of Sworn, we continue delving into the Tiffany Witten disappearance. We've seen the Walmart in person, and we've gone through the timeline as best as we know it to be. We now have a better idea of who Tiffany is. Now it's time to talk about what is being done a little over four years later to keep this case actually alive. This is Sworn. I'm Jesse Evans. I'm Chief Assistant District Attorney with the Cobb DA's office. My I had the opportunity to sit down with both Prosecutor Jesse Evans and Tiffany's mother, Lisa Daniels, and we were able to discuss this case as a group. 
Is everybody basically working off the presumption that this is a homicide at this point? At this point, there's no uh, other reasonable explanation for what could have happened to Tiffany. So we are treating it as an active homicide investigation, looking at all the circumstances surrounding her disappearance and the complete lack of contact that anyone has had with her since her disappearance in September of 2014. I don't think there's any way for us to look at this objectively and, and see that it needs to be treated in any other way. Is there any specific set of criteria that you use to decide when to treat a missing person's case as a homicide, or is it sort of a totality of the circumstances? I think it's really got to be a totality of the circumstance. Um, You know, every case is a little bit different, and while I'm open to the possibility that certain people might, in some instances, want to make themselves scarce, they might want to go live a, a different lifestyle. There are certainly circumstances you can look at that show that, well, that person is still around, that person's still able to be found if somebody wanted to find them. And this is not one of those cases. There have been similar cases I've worked on where you just look at all the facts and circumstances and you realize something is wrong here. Something is different than your normal situation where perhaps a person is involved in this drug culture and immerse themselves in such a way that they don't want to be found by a loved one. This is simply not the case with Tiffany Winton. There's always challenges when you're dealing with cold cases in general. There are added challenges when there's been a delay in us being able to get involved in the investigation. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that we started off with. You know, I personally uh, get involved in these major crimes investigations very early on. And early on for us was not until after January of 2014, unfortunately. And by that time, there have been some months that had passed before she had disappeared. And that creates a lot of issues for us, a lot of legal and factual issues for cold case investigators and prosecutors such as myself to go back and try to piece together an, an adequate timeline of, of what could have happened. We have a unique uh, circumstance here where we actually have video footage of the last time that Tiffany Witten was known to be alive. And that creates a good starting point for where we need to go from there to figure out what were the last moments like, what were the last hours like with her before she essentially disappeared from the face of the earth. And people don't just disappear from the face of the earth. What additional challenges can arise due to a delay in reporting? Sure. I think probably a lot of your listeners and a lot of the general public are familiar with the show The First 48, and there's a lot to be said about The First 48. It's a reality-based TV show where they talk about the importance of the first 48 hours of an investigation. And and I would agree with the premise that early on in the investigation, that's when you're ripe to get clues that could assist with a criminal investigation. We had a, a compounding problem with the beginning of this investigation in that um, she, she had already sort of been living in this this culture where she didn't have very much contact with family members and loved ones. Add to it that she was admittedly involved in the crime of shoplifting, caught on video at a Walmart locally, and probably had some concerns about that. Then you add to it that there's a delay in reporting, and then once it is reported, I don't fault my investigators for this, but there's a kind of a skepticism that sometimes law enforcement has when they first look at these cases and see, well, here's a person that's got a criminal history and admittedly has been involved in the drug scene for some period of time here. Is this merely a missing person's case or something more sinister going on? So it wasn't until we really started peeling the layers of the onion that we started to realize, hey, something happened in September of 2013, and all the red flags are there. What do we know about the last known moments of her life? On video, we saw her with her then-boyfriend, individual named Ashley Caudill. They were at a local Walmart, city of Marietta. 
about two o'clock in the morning, by just a lay person's observations, it was clear that she was probably on drugs at the time, and he probably was too. She's there for some period of time going through clothing racks and things like that, and eventually gets to the checkout location. It's one of those areas where you can check out on your own. You don't need a customer service representative to help you. And this entire time, not known to her, but there were loss prevention officers that were watching her in the store. That would be easy to do considering how early morning hour this was. There weren't many people in the store anyway. So what happened is she attempted to steal something, something minor. It was, I think it was probably worth $14, $18 from what loss prevention has told me. And as she passed the point of sale and was about to leave the store, she was approached by two loss prevention officers who attempted to detain her. They did so as is their practice and custom by grabbing an item of hers, knowing that she probably wouldn't want to leave it, that being a purse. You could see that she literally left out of a sandal and left out of her purse and ran out into the darkness through the doors of the Walmart and out into the parking lot. Her boyfriend remained for just a brief moment at the doorway. Then he turned and walked out into the darkness as well. And that's the last firm, independent documentation of her life. This event that just happened to have been caught on Walmart surveillance video because of the fact that she was admittedly committing this misdemeanor crime of shoplifting at 2 o'clock in the morning. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, my name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. 
It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And are there videos in the parking lot? You know, we attempted to get videos in the parking lot, and we were not successful in getting them. Understand this, too. It was my understanding loss prevention called law enforcement. They did a cursory check into this. I don't even know that a full police report was made. But nobody really realized what the gravity of the situation was. So it was some months afterwards before we even got involved that we even wanted to go back and look at any of the video. Unfortunately for us, the inside video was retained because they kept this as a shoplifting investigation. But we were not successful in getting any exterior video because nobody realized what the significance of that might be. For loss prevention, just like regular law enforcement, you want to keep the evidence that is most probative. And obviously, any evidence catching somebody on video committing a shoplifting, committing a crime, that's going to be important for them. And they're going to automatically retain that. But most stores do not retain all video that they have for their store for an indefinite period of time. It's kept for a finite period of time. It takes up a lot of space in their databases. Oftentimes, it's on a loop. It actually starts recording over itself. So we attempted to get video from the exterior of the Walmart, we just weren't successful. Of course, there was a pretty significant delay before we realized that that might be of importance to us. But for the fact that there was a shoplifting involved, we might not have even been able to catch these moments um, inside the store. They were retained for any future criminal prosecution if it ever developed. She's an adult. You know, she's not a child. I kind of was of the same mind as law enforcement in the beginning that she was shoplifting. We found that out. So we knew that she had gotten caught shoplifting at Walmart. So she's on parole. So what's my first instinct? She's laying low. She knows she's going to be in trouble. So there was really no reason for us to be alarmed initially. But that said, I mean, I would encourage anybody now, knowing what I know now, that if they have an adult child in this situation, drug life, whatever the case may be, and you haven't heard from them and you can't put eyes on them or hear their voice, I don't care about text messages, hear their voice or put eyes on them, you should report them missing. If I had it to go back and do over again, I would change the way I did it. However, I don't think law enforcement would have been inclined to investigate at that point either. The first flag that went up was when my parents received a letter that was from Walmart's attorneys. This is standard procedure for Walmart. If you get caught shoplifting, you'll get a letter from their attorney saying, pay us some money and we won't file any civil charges. It makes it look like they'll drop the charges, but they're just promising not to file a civil suit if you pay them restitution. So two of those letters came to my parents' home because that was the address that was listed on her driver's license, which they had because they had her purse, okay? So they knew who she was. That's one reason why they didn't really go after her was because they had her purse. They knew who she was. So I wanted to follow up mm -hmm. with that real quick. Why would they be seeking restitution when she didn't get away from the store with any property? I don't know. That's a good question. Maybe one you should ask them. I don't know. Do you know, either of you, why Walmart didn't call 911 or call the police to report a I shoplifting? Think, I think that they did call the police. I believe Marietta police were dispatched, but they didn't do, they're not going to do an all-out search for a petty shoplifter. I mean, they're just not going to do that. Especially when they've got other things going on and nobody got away with any property. Exactly. And they had her purse. They knew who she was. I don't know the intent to prosecute. I really don't know where it was going to go from there. 
What happened to Ashley Caudle that evening, that morning? Looking at the video, we know that he went out into the parking lot and we know that he interacted with some people that he knew that were around that area. This was not an area that was unfamiliar to him and unfamiliar to Tiffany. They both spent some period of time around this area before as well as in the Powder Springs area. So we know that he had some interactions with some individuals into the morning hours who saw him there. We have not found anyone that saw her there at that area after she left the Walmart. Well, that Walmart is just a mile or so away from here, and it's not exactly an out-of-the-way location. It's a lot of people, of, I guess, from all walks of life would go there. Correct. But maybe just not at 2 o'clock in the morning. Correct. It's a pretty busy area around the Walmart. There's a lot of restaurants, a lot of extended stay motels. And we do have, in terms of drug arrests, it's an area where we make a a significant amount of arrests for drug possession and drug use, particularly at the extended stay motel. So it is a populated area, but there are little pockets as well just off the more populated areas where you can find some quiet space. So there's a lot of, I was driving by there the other day and I just happened to notice because I I wanted to look, but I noticed that there's a lot of businesses that likely have some type of exterior surveillance cameras, banks, you've got ATMs in the area. Have all those things been checked? In an ideal situation, had we known on September the 13th or September the 14th of 2013 that this was going to turn into what it was, we would have hit all those locations for any potential surveillance. But going back to one of the issues we had discussed previously about retention and business retention of surveillance, we've not been successful in being able to get any usable surveillance video with the delay in time from when this investigation changed, which really wasn't until around January of 2014. It's been my experience that businesses just don't keep surveillance material unless they need to for more than about a month. That's correct. It's been my experience too. You know, I almost wish in many instances we could go back to some of our businesses and ask them to use, first of all, more modern systems. Secondly, ask them to have a longer retention policy, but it's just not feasible for some of these businesses to be able to do that. And it does complicate things. I think the general public watches TV and they they imagine that because there's a camera on every corner um, that somehow magically we're able to tap into a master database and be able to download that footage at will, and it's just simply not the case in the reality of law enforcement. Unless you happen to have a business entity that's interested in retaining something for some particular reason, such as it containing evidence of a shoplifting, then it's more likely than not with time, the passage of time, you're not going to be able to get the surveillance. That's what we have here. Why was it that nobody was able to ping her cell phone to triangulate her location? Because she didn't have it with her. I read something in another media report, and I forget which one it was. I read that at some point in time, someone, if I'm not mistaken, was in your family, felt that she had reached out to them over social media, mm-hmm. or was it by text? There actually was a Facebook message sent to her half-brother on his birthday, but when he messaged back to say, you know, hey, what's up, where are you, there was never any response. Someone from her Facebook account sent a message to her half-brother saying Correct. happy birthday. Correct. The key is we don't know for sure who actually sent that Correct. message. Because she did not have her phone. Let me ask you this. Would anybody who had her phone been able to access her Facebook account? Yes. I did access her Facebook account, and when I opened it, there were hundreds of unread messages, notifications, friend requests, hundreds. 
So I knew that she had not accessed her Facebook. The issue is then that someone that probably wasn't her, and it wasn't you, accessed her Facebook account and sent a message after she was reported missing. That's correct. But nothing before she was reported missing. Correct. We've had a number of leads, I'll go as far to say false leads, that have come up over the years, and we look into every single one of them. We attempted to look into that lead pretty good, and we just don't have any reason to believe that that was a message from Tiffany to her half-brother. There's no evidence to support that. Um, and not, not to call anyone out, but the, the, there's been a lack of cooperation on the part of maybe some of her family members as well who are more on the fringes to help us involve, investigate and look into some of those leads as well, which is even more evidence that they're, they're probably false leads. You know, she left Walmart. When she ran out those doors, she had no ID, no phone, no shoes. What do we know about the last, say, 12 hours before she went missing? Just to summarize, he talked about it being a fairly normal period of time with himself and Tiffany prior to the Walmart incident. He gave us a bit of a timeline of different places he had been, a house, a friend's house, using the friend's pickup truck, talked about the events in the Walmart, a lot of which, like I said, were captured on video. So some of it we could, we could look at pretty quickly and be able to compare uh, to his statement. Um, and then his assertion about what happened afterwards was that she uh, ran out of the Walmart and he just never saw her again, that uh, he, he claimed he attempted to find her, uh, claimed that he searched the area. He, he admitted to some of the people that he had talked to, um, many of whom we've now spoken with. And um, his, his assertion is that uh, he, he tried his best to find her, too, and wasn't able to do so. Did he say what he did? Like, did he say that I went to the IHOP or I went to this place or that place? Was he specific or was he general? He, he was um, both general and specific. Generally, he said, I, I looked for, um, when pressed on the specifics, he admit that he went to um, uh, an IHOP, which is at that location. He happened to know somebody there who ran into him at, at the location. Um, so we, we were able to talk to her and confirm that. Um, his claim was that he uh, called for a friend and that he rode around with a friend for a while uh, looking for her. And um, so there, there were a mix of, of some specifics and some generalities about what had occurred. But ultimately what he said basically was that despite his attempts to find her, uh, he wasn't able to get in touch with her. What were you able to do with regard to her phone records that may have added anything to what you know? We've gone through phone records extensively. And from a modern law enforcement perspective, that's almost always a good starting place is looking at phone records, uh, cell tower analysis, those types of things. And we did that not only with her phone, um, we did that with a number of other target cell phones as well. And um, there wasn't a whole lot of activity that was beneficial to us. I, I think people have this misconception that as long as you're carrying your phone there's going to be activity on it. That's sometimes the case and sometimes not. It kind of depends on whether you have apps open, uh, whether there are things running in the background, whether you're actively texting somebody or making phone calls. But when there's limited activity, there's going to be limited information that you're able to get back from the cell companies as well. But part of my responsibility as the head of the cold case unit is to make sure that my guys, my investigators, are looking at all that cell phone evidence. And over the years, we have um, repeatedly uh, looked at, analyzed, and reanalyzed the cell phone evidence. Um, so far, it has not yielded uh, anything that's a smoking gun, so to speak, as to 
explaining the mystery of how she disappeared. It's my understanding that she uh, may have had some issues with paying her, her cell phone bill. So most of her contact with the outer world was actually by, by Facebook messaging, uh, at least until September the 13th of, of 2013. And then the Facebook messaging essentially stopped. Do you know about how old Tiffany was when she started on the path that led her to that Walmart in 2013? I really couldn't say. I mean, she had issues, honestly, from middle school. Um, behavioral issues and hanging with the wrong people. There were no instances of drinking, drugs, anything like that. When she was younger, it wasn't really until she was away from home and still kind of hanging around people she shouldn't have been hanging around. And I think by the time I realized that I really knew that she was into drugs, she was really into drugs by that point. So she she had done a pretty good job for quite a while of hiding it pretty well. Um, the one time that I suspected there was something going on, um, you know, I had her daughter, and I had told her, you need to come and take her to the doctor. It's time for her checkup. I have to work. You need to come and take her. She's your child. Come take her to the doctor. Oh, yeah, no problem, no problem. So she comes down the night before, spends the night, and I find out when I get home the next day that she had slept the entire day and almost completely missed the appointment. I found this out from my young daughter who basically had to watch her little niece all day while Tiffany slept. And I knew, I knew then that there was, that wasn't right. How old was her daughter when she disappeared? Um, she was six. Did she still have any interaction with her daughter? Not really, um, because of the drug situation. You know, it was just such a tough call. We didn't really know what to do in that situation, you know? She's using drugs, she's unstable, she's in and out. We don't know when she's gonna be here, when she's not. And this is a little child who doesn't understand. So it was, you know, that was a tough call to keep her away, but we did keep her away. But the goal was, at some point, to have them, you know, interact until hopefully at some point Tiffany got clean and could parent her. That was the ultimate goal. This will never be a case that's going to simply gather dust. We're always working on this one. Sometimes we have cases that are very uh, forensic-driven. It, um, it's a DNA-type case. It's a ballistics-type case. Uh, sometimes you have cases that are, are very different from that, that are statement-driven where really the key to the understanding the case and getting answers is going to be people and, and, and people talking with us. And um, I think the, the number one thing that we continue to do is to interview and re-interview people. And we've been doing that for literally years right now. And um, part of the reason, quite frankly, that I'm sitting down with you right now, Phil, is because um, I feel like there is more out there to this case that the public knows and some segments of the public that are just not comfortable coming forward right now for whatever reason. Maybe it's fear. Uh, maybe, maybe it's some other motivation. But I, I've always believed that the more um, publicity we can get for the case and the more we can put our cold cases units availability to talk out there, that more information is, is going to come in. And that's exactly what's happened over the years. This is going to boil down to people 
finally feeling comfortable with sharing information with us that maybe they've held close to their chest for, for literally years. And I truly believe in my heart of hearts, I know that there are people out there that know more information about this case. They may even be people that we've already talked to before. Um, but um, I, I suspect there are probably some people out there that we haven't talked to yet. And um, we're always listening. Every, every time we get a name, every time we get a tip, um, we go out and we talk to that person. A lot of the tips um, come, quite frankly, um, because of Lisa and her tenacity. And you know, she's been very tenacious about keeping the, this information out there and keeping her ears open, whether it's through Facebook, the Find Tiffany Whitney page, whatever that means may be of communicating with us. If people are going to share information with us, we're going to follow up on it. How often do you get tips or new information that needs to be followed up with? It comes fairly regularly. In this case, it's coming fairly regularly. I, I, it would be unusual, certainly, for a month to go by where we didn't get a new tip, but it's not uncommon for us to get multiple tips within a week or two-week period of time. Um, a lot of it's coming from social media. A lot of it's coming from Facebook. A lot of it's going directly to Lisa, and uh, Lisa is then forwarding on to, to myself and my cold case unit uh, led by John Dawes. I believe that there are people out there that know more than they've shared with us. And um, they may not even know that what, what they hold is, is significant. They're involved in, in drug use. They're involved in illegal activity, a lot of these folks. And um, that doesn't make them very particularly willing to pick up the phone and say, hey, police, come talk to me. I know that a lot of people, I think, question, why would you spend so much time trying to find somebody who clearly you know, had her issues. She had drug issues. She had a, a criminal past, but, you know, that's not how I view her. You know, she's still my child, my baby, and um, she's, you know, she's a human being and she is worthy of, of being found. And she has a little girl who needs some answers. She has a family who need answers um, as to as to what happened to her. Anybody would want that. You know, I would just say to, to anybody who might hear this, Please, you know, just come forward. I don't care how you do it. Write a letter, make an anonymous call. If you're afraid, I get that. But it is the right thing to do. And right now, we just need somebody to do the right thing. Um, just as a personal matter, if you walked in my office right now, you would have to pass by no less than four or five pictures of Tiffany Whitten that are hanging on my door. I see her every day that I walk into the office. I see her every day when I turn off my light and head home. The frustrating part about this case, though, is I really believe it's going to be solved with statements. It's going to be solved with somebody feeling comfortable to come forward, maybe even someone we've already talked to feeling more comfortable to share um, the, the truth about what they know. And um, this is not a situation, just look at it, at it objectively, where uh, Tiffany was out camping and disappeared in the woods. Um, she ran it out of a crowded Walmart into a crowded area of the city of Marietta, and then disappeared. Jesse, if, if anybody has any information or feels like they want to contact you guys, what do they need to do? We've set up a tip line for our cold case unit, and that number is 770-528-3032. We just encourage anyone with the general public who knows information about this case to contact our cold case unit so we can follow up on that. That number again, 770-528-3032. All I'm asking is for somebody to, to just do the right thing. Be that person who gives a family closure and can answer a little girl's question about, is my mommy dead? 
because that's what she asks. Is my mommy dead? How do you answer that to a child when you don't know? I mean, we haven't had, she's been to a funeral for her grandmother. She knows her grandmother's dead. She knows her grandmother's in heaven, both of them. So she knows that, but she doesn't know where her mommy is, and that's unfair. That is unfair. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpert. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. 
Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's absolutely heartbreaking talking to Tiffany's mother. As a parent, I simply cannot wrap my head around the grief that she must have experienced and that she's still experiencing today. Now, Lisa Daniels is the legal guardian of Tiffany's own daughter. I cannot even imagine what this must be like for Lisa not to have the answers for her granddaughter when she asked the question, where is my mother? Hey guys, I want to tell you about Zola. This is the wedding company that will do anything for love. They are reinventing the wedding planning and registry experience to make the happiest moment in couples' lives even happier. They combine compassionate customer service with modern tools and technology, all in the service of love. So go ahead and join the over 300,000 couples who've used Zola because they have everything that you love about your favorite department store, plus things like honeymoon funds, fitness classes, wine subscriptions, and so much more. The Zola Registry even has over 500 top brands and 50,000 gifts, experiences, and cash funds. It's so easy to use for couples and their guests. It even allows group gifting, and you can personalize your registry with photos and notes about why you're coveting certain items. It's more than just a wedding registry. It's a free suite of wedding planning tools, including free wedding websites. And the full suite of tools can be managed right from the Zola Weddings app for iPhone and Android. So here's what I'd like you to do. To sign up with Zola and receive $50 towards your registry, go to Zola.com slash sworn. I've actually been to the website, and I really wish it had been there when I got married. So go to Zola.com slash sworn for your special offer. We've seen other missing persons cases that might be simply gathering dust on a shelf. So let's ask the question, is this case gathering dust? Has enough been done to keep it alive and fresh? Assistant District Attorney Jesse Evans put his trust in John Dawes at the cold case unit to take this case over. We sat down and spoke to John to get a feel for what exactly is being done right now, as well as to ask him what we might be able to do to help. Our hope in all these unsolved cases is that we can spur discussion and remind people to come forward if they know anything at all. And I promise you, somebody somewhere does know something. And just so the record's clear, to answer my own question, I'm satisfied that this is one case that is not simply gathering dust. It is actually being worked, and it's being worked actively. When did you start on Tiffany's case? About a year and a half ago, uh, we met with Marietta. Um, the chief assistant district attorney, Jesse Evans, has kind of been alongside the case since um, January of 2014. Uh, and he's a liaison between us and the police agencies here in Cobb County. So um, between a year and a half and two years ago, they they kind of consulted with us and asked us to take a look at everything. They provided us with a complete copy of the file, and, and we started digging into it. Anytime there's a, a missing person, um, foul play suspected, it uh, brings on a, a whole new uh, atmosphere to the case. If you're working a murder case, you have a body, you have a scene, uh, you have physical evidence to work with, and you have uh, light at the end of the tunnel from the day it occurs. On a missing person... Um, in a case like this, it's, it's problematic um, because there are so many people who um, want to shed light. Um, there are so many people who 
want to provide information to look like they're cooperating, yet they they tend to send the, the investigators off in different directions. Um, so liars? Pretty much, pretty much, to be blunt. Um, Are you dealing with a lot of those in this case? We deal with a lot of those in every case. Um, certainly there have been um, some um, information that gets at least to a second, third, fourth party, and, and you lose a little bit of the truth in every phase of that type of system. But, yes, there have been some liars in this case. So that actually brings up a good point. If you lose a little bit in, like, every phase, I know this case has changed hands three times or two times. Was it was it Johnny Moeller first and then Mike Freer and then you? Uh, yes. So does that make things harder? Well, it would, uh, except that uh, I have a close working relationship with Detective Muller and Detective Freer. Um, so communicating with them is, uh, has been pretty instrumental in the case. Um, you know, a lot of people think, okay, we get, we get a copy of the police reports and everything's good, we know everything. But um, you lose a lot if you can't communicate with the lead detective in the case. Um, police reports, if they paid attention, the academy are supposed to be facts, not opinion, not thoughts, not uh, considerations that they have when they go home and sit down at night and can't get it out of their mind. So we want to uh, pull from those lead detectives as frequently as we can for as much information as we can just to get their insight and their feelings about things. Although, they're, by definition, a cold case has sat for 12 months with, with no movement, no uh, no active leads. and. This is different uh, because there are so many people who are, who are hands-on and wanting to move it, but it's uh, as far as actual leads go, it's been cold uh, for over a year. So so how do you approach a case like this? What's the first thing that you did? The first thing we did is, is we sorted through, and it took weeks, but we sorted through the boxes of uh, binders and, and reports and files that we were provided um, and I assigned one of my guys just to look at phone records, nothing else. I assigned one person to, to do some research into the, the one piece of evidence we have, the video from Walmart. Um, and then I had another person just kind of f- forming it back into, uh, alongside me, forming it back into an actual case file that's just a chronologically organized report to make it easier to read. Um, that took weeks just to get it to there. Um, and then, then we began sorting through it, um, reading through it, trying to identify everyone who's involved. We live in a very transient society. The same is true with, with the young people involved in this case. They're hard to locate sometimes. So we started trying to uh, make sure that we had all the facts about where they were at, what they were doing, where they worked, and all that kind of stuff, what their associations are outside of this case um, to see where we could get Tiffany is a, a mom and uh, no doubt loves her little girl. Uh, the little girl was with Grandma, Lisa, uh, and in good care. But when, when an adult uh, can't be found, hasn't been heard from or seen by their friends, um, doesn't have a work that they would normally be going to day in and day out, you know, and, and all of a sudden they're just kind of gone, um, if they don't come back to, to check on their children, if they don't send messages at least to check on their children, that concerns me as an investigator about their well-being. Um, when they have a, a bank account and there's no attempt to access the funds, 
by the person who who can't be found, then that's uh, a sign to me that that uh, that foul play has occurred. So um, I think that was noted uh, pretty early in the case. Do you, is that is there a window that you might think that whatever happened to her is there a time period that that happened in y'all able to narrow it down? Is it that night, the next day? I'm going to safely say that within. Uh, Within a few hours of the time that Tiffany left Walmart, everything occurred. I can tell you that there are two people in my unit that are working this case every day, and uh, and and I'm involved in that as well. Uh, and I have a lot of other obligations on all the other cases that we're working. But uh, but I have two people who are who are in and out of this case every day trying to work on it, trying to come up with ideas, trying to locate people, trying to, to set up um, situations where we can um, do some, some justice for the case and, and bring some real answers. Uh, it's a, I'm a parent, um, and I empathize with Lisa in this case. I want nothing better uh, for her than some very real truth to come out. Um, healing doesn't start until you begin to get truth. So I want uh, I want to find truth for uh, Lisa Daniels and, and get her the information that she that she so desperately wants and needs. How often do you communicate with Lisa? With Lisa, it's about once a week, uh, sometimes twice a week that we text back and forth a little bit or talk on the phone. And uh, and she's uh, I made her a promise. And that is that uh, by the time we get done, she'll know more than she knew when we picked it up. So Lisa is um, strong. She's a strong-willed person. Um, she uh, is a great parent in that she um, knocks on the door. And if you don't answer early enough, she just kind of opens the door and comes on in. If you try to close the door on her, she puts her foot in it and pushes you out of the way and gets your attention. So... Um, I can't, uh, I can't ask for anything more uh, from her than to, uh, than to keep pushing for what she, she justly deserves, and that's some truth. There are people who could call me today and provide me with the right information, I have no doubt. We have no factual documentation that anyone saw them together after the Walmart incident, but I believe that someone does exist. Tell me who this Ashley guy is and where he's at today. Ashley is uh, was at the time Tiffany's boyfriend, and uh, Ashley is uh, in the Department of Corrections as we speak on uh, unassociated charges. Um, he's been interviewed multiple times. He's never uh, just shut down and said, no, I won't talk to you. Um, he's provided information uh, to Detective Moeller, and uh, and he did the interview with Esquire magazine. Um, he's not uh, a person who has just completely um, shut himself off from the investigation. Um, a lot of people have issues with Ashley because uh, he didn't file the report that she was missing that night. Uh, he didn't contact anyone and say, you know, that, she ran, and I don't know where she went. Um, and even days in, he didn't contact anyone. He he did make uh, 
contacts with other people. He made inquiries with other people, but it never went to the police about her, about her, you know, not being seen. So uh, he he's a person of interest, just as many other people are in the case who um, who have come about. It's any any time you have a boyfriend girlfriend relationship, um, husband wife relationship, you you obviously look at that person first. Uh, and see if you uh, draw any conclusions that they would have more involvement. Yeah, and from what I've learned, their relationship wasn't a normal, happy, healthy relationship. So I don't know. Um, I mean, I think there was violence in their relationship. So, In the uh, background research done with uh, by Detective Muller in the Marietta Police Department, they're there was some information that came forward about some uh, domestic disputes that had gone on in the past between them. Um, so that, that'd be, that's been looked at as well, obviously. Can you tell me about the barrel filled with concrete that was thrown off of Bethany Bridge in Ackworth by Ashley and some of his associates? Uh, there was a tip that came through uh, that sounds familiar to that, and just there have been other tips uh, that have come through that that uh, she was put here, she was put there, this is how she was dumped, um, and it happens in these types of cases. Uh, but there's no, there was a search conducted um, with DNR's assistance and married police, and, and um, nothing was recovered at, at that search. There are ways to do things and ways not to do things, and, and I'm never surprised anymore by by uh, what people do and the measures they take to get away with something. But um, that information was was brought to us through a through the Marietta Police Department through a tip, and uh, it was researched, it was checked out, and nothing resulted from. Do you think there's any physical evidence? One of the reasons the case has uh, gone where it has, uh, and is at the the stage that it's at today three and a half years later is because there was no crime scene full of physical evidence in the case. I think there is physical evidence. I don't think it's been recovered yet. And I think that, that once uh, we've found that physical evidence, then it's going to answer everything we need to know. Uh, when we're sitting in here as a group, um, these people who work alongside me on these cases, we share information um, because the, the whole idea behind the uh, Cold Case Unit forming was that that it would be wonderful to have people dedicated to looking at these old cases um, with a different set of eyes. So we utilize that strategy and we bounce things off of each other. We make notes. Um, and there, there are times when we're all in here together and uh, one of us has a thought, we get up, jump to the whiteboard and go to town writing a bunch of stuff so everybody can see it. And, and I'm I'm one of those people that if I hear something, I can think it through and remember it for a few minutes. If I hear it and see it, it lasts with me a little bit longer. So so that's how we do some of our formulated group studies of cases in here. So it's her missing flyer, Tiffany Witten, and then just underneath it, it says Ashley Cottle. And to the left of that, it says questions for Cottle. The reason that we have the two pictured up there, Tiffany and Ashley, is because that's who was at the Walmart. Mm-hmm. Right, of course. When, when this when this incident occurred, and Tiffany ran from security, and 
Um, Ashley Cottle was there. He was with her in the store for an hour leading up to this. And then after she ran, he stood there for a moment and then he walked away. Um, so in our minds, those two are, are together and he's the last one with her. The notes on the dry erase boards in the cold case unit mainly focus on Tiffany. Her case takes up a board and a half. It's essentially broken down into three sections. A timeline, a to-do list, and questions for Cottle. We see names on the to-do list under a section marked interview slash re-interview. Names like Stephen Weinstein, the friend that supposedly picked up Ashley Cottle on that night. Sheila Fuller, the former roommate of Tiffany. Jason Zuccarini, one of Tiffany's ex-boyfriends. Cinnamon, another friend. There are questions like, who was living in Benedict's house on September 13th, 2013, besides Cottle? And lots of notes that involve looking into phone records. According to Dawes, the majority of these people have been talked to at some point. It's just a matter of going through and doing it again. More than likely, someone wasn't telling the truth. Hopefully that truth will come sooner rather than later, because Lisa says, though she is currently trusting law enforcement and the process, she won't hold back forever. You know a list of people that if you could just write down a list of names that the police would just grill for answers. Do you know who those people are? Names? Like friends, circles, do you know those people? I know a couple. (laughs) Could you tell me who they were? No. Mm-mm. Why not? I just don't want to do anything that would jeopardize their investigation. So I know that... They're looking at these people yeah. privately? Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Well, I, I really hope that they are able to trip somebody up or find what they're looking for. I think it'll happen eventually. I, yeah. You know, my biggest worry is, yeah, I do know who a couple of these people are. My biggest worry is that they OD and die before we get any information yeah. out of them. That, that honestly is, is, I worry about that every day. I mean, I, I went on Facebook and I said, look, I'm going to start naming names. Somebody needs to do the right thing here. I'm, I'm just going to start naming names. And then, you know, it's kind of like, uh, law, law enforcement doesn't really you hold <laughs> like for? you to do that. I'm not going to hold back forever. Yeah. I, I will not hold back forever. Yeah. But I feel like in this case, when it comes to naming people, I do feel like I have to give John the opportunity. You know, I know that there are a lot of moving parts involved, you know, different different departments and people involved. So it's not just a matter of him saying, okay, I'm going to go get this guy and I'm going to grill this guy because they got to have something to hold over them. They got to have something that says, you know what? You are facing a lot of time in prison, and yeah, and and we can help you, but you got to come clean and just lean on them until they do. Otherwise, then then you have to make it happen. You have to be able to make good on the and the on the threat that you're facing a lot of time in prison. So that takes time. That takes time to build. You know, to have all those moving parts working in unison and say, okay. We've got this guy dead to rights. There is no way that we're going to lose this case in court. If we if we go to court, you know, if he doesn't come clean and we don't help him with a plea deal or whatever, then he is facing 20 years or he's facing 15 years. He and he'll be in prison for 15 years. And but they've got to be able to make that stick. And I think these these guys and girls in Cobb County that are running in this crowd they know. They know. I'll be out in three months. 
I'll be out in a year. I can do that standing on my head. Three hots in a cot for a year, I'm good with that. I don't have to work. I don't have to, you know. The only thing they're missing is their drugs, right? We've gained a lot more knowledge and insight into just why this case is now so convoluted. There's some very suspicious aspects to this case, particularly the whereabouts of Tiffany's cell phone. That's a big one. And what about that suspicious activity on her Facebook account? Are these factors just throwing investigators off the trail, or are they tied into the final answer to this mystery? In my opinion, Ashley Caudle knows more about these two questions than probably anyone else. I don't think it's any secret that Ashley Caudle remains the primary person of interest in this case, but there's probably other people that know something about this case and could point investigators in the right direction. As far as cold cases are concerned, I think that law enforcement is being as proactive as they possibly can be. I mean, it's not every day that you've got the district attorney's office directly involved in investigating a cold case. Typically, district attorneys take over cases when the police make an arrest and finish an investigation. But that doesn't change the fact that in terms of the lead investigator, this case has changed hands a number of times. Nevertheless, I think it's in the right place now. I think that the Cobb County Cold Case Unit is in the best position to solve this case. There's one crucial takeaway from all of this. It's something I've known for a while, but learning about the Tiffany Whitten case simply underscores this one simple fact. If someone is missing, report them right away. Don't wait. That initial 48-hour time period is absolutely critical. Investigators can do so much if they just know that someone is missing and they know that they need to be looking. After 48 hours has passed, it makes it so much harder for investigators to piece together what someone may be doing with their life. And finally, please, if anybody knows anything about the disappearance or what may have happened to Tiffany Witten, please contact John Dawes at the Cobb County District Attorney's Office or even your local law enforcement agency. Somebody somewhere knows something. All it takes is that one call. So if you know anything, please contact John Dawes at the Cobb County District Attorney's Office or contact local law enforcement. Tiffany deserves to be found and her family deserves closure. Sworn is produced by Tenderfoot TV in Atlanta. Story in production by Payne Lindsay, Mason Lindsay, and Meredith Stedman, and myself, Philip Holloway. Executive producers, Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay. And if you haven't yet, please check out our sister podcast, Up and Vanished, that follows the investigation into the disappearance of Georgia high school teacher and beauty queen, Tara Grinstead. Up and Vanished is available now on Apple Podcasts. Sworn is mixed and mastered by Resonate Recordings. If you're in the market for podcast production, go to ResonateRecordings.com to get your first episode produced for free. If you haven't already, please head over to iTunes now to subscribe, rate, and review Sworn. And make sure you check us out online at SwornPodcast.com and follow us on social media at SwornPodcast on Twitter and Instagram. And you can follow me, your host, Philip Holloway, at PhilHollowayESQ on Twitter. Thanks for listening. 
This is Philip Holloway, and I'll see you next time on Swarm. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series called Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halpern. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold Blooded, the Apollo Jim murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.